0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Hello and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by Tim Foster, my colleague. Hi, John. And our special guest today is law professor Courtney Joslin, the University of California at Davis. And it's been a heck of a week for legal decisions and assorted other things. So I wanted to ask Courtney about that. Courtney, thank you very much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, we'll get into a discussion of the Uniform Parentage Act, which I know you know a lot about. I, I just wanted to get your quick take on this week. It's only been a week. I know it seems like a lot longer, but um, multiple rulings out of the Supreme Court that have major impacts. Of course, the Dobbs case, but others as well. What? What's your kind of quick takeaway on this?
2: Yeah, so it has, it has been um, a big week, big month, big year. Uh, and you know certainly uh, the court's ruling, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few words I think about Dobbs first, the court's ruling in Dobbs was uh, maybe not surprising but shocking nonetheless. And will have really profound impacts on the lives not just of pregnant people, many of whom will now not have access to abortion care that they are seeking. Um, but I think as the dissent suggests, will have impacts for women and women's lives more generally and their place in our society.
1: I thought, um, this sounds like a minor, qu- well, it is a minor question, but it was kind of interesting to me. The first reporting on the Dobbs case alluded to a 6-3 opinion, a six-six-three decision. Then there was comment about 5-4 and that, kept coming up. And the reason it kept coming up, as I understand it, is because Roberts, while agreeing with others on the, um, on the Dobbs case, uh, the Chief Justice dissented on whether Roe v. Wade should be a- repealed. And so, and so that's how he got with the 5-4 versus the 6-3. I don't know, I notice this, and I know reporters notice it, because when you write this stuff, You want to be as accurate as you can be. Do you have any thoughts about that? Or or am I just reading it?
2: (laughs) So so to be clear, I mean, the specific question in the Dobbs case, right, it was a challenge to a Mississippi law that banned almost all abortions after 15 weeks. Uh And under the established law, under Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that law was clearly unconstitutional because Casey clearly provided that prior to viability, which is about 23 to 24 weeks, states could not ban abortions. Uh Um, In the decision, right, six members of the court, including Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, held that the Mississippi law was constitutional. They upheld the law. Um, And so he is with the majority. He is upholding a law that was clearly unconstitutional under the law that existed the day before the decision was issued. Um, You're right, though that he says that he was not ready at that moment in time because it was not necessary to do so in that case to overrule Roe and Casey. He wasn't saying he wouldn't do so if pressed, but he was saying we didn't need to do so to decide that case, to decide whether or not that law was permissible. And so I think we need not go there in this case.
1: Um, another term that came up, In the confirmation hearing of ju- hearings of justices, as well as in the uh, case itself, in the Dobbs case itself, is this notion of settled law. Uh, it sounds like be pretty easy to say what settled law is, but there are various interpretations of what it is and what it means uh, when it's in statutes. So I just was hoping I could get a, maybe a definition from you or maybe your thoughts on, is this important, settled law?
2: Yeah, and I'll I'll use a different phrase. So there's this uh, doctrine called stare decisis, uh, which is similar to the notion of settled law. It's this idea that um, the court will normally allow precedents to stand, allow things to stand. And this is a critical pillar really of the rule of law. Um, That is to in order to provide certainty and stability to the law and to ensure the legitimacy of the court and to reaffirm that the court is not a political entity, but a legal entity, the court, again, will normally adhere to its prior precedence, even if the members of the court would have reached a different conclusion if they were answering the question in the first instance. Um, and it's not an absolute or an inexorable command. Sometimes the court does overrule its precedence, but it's very unusual, or it has been very unusual in the past for the court to do that. Um, in this case, the court did overrule not just a prior precedent, but a longstanding precedent and one that had been reaffirmed many, many times. And I think some would argue that the court's approach to this principle, this principle of stare decisis that it uses in the job's opinion is really quite a, remark, uh, quite a shift from its earlier approach to the doctrine um, and one that's significantly weakened and seems to allow the court to overrule a prior precedent just because it wants to, just because it thinks the case was incorrectly decided.
0: You know, and looking back on history, again, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but the only case I can think of that would have this sort of an overwhelming uh, impact on American society would maybe be Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, is there is there anything else in the last 100 years that's been even close to this as far as reversing A precedent that had impacted so much of American life?
2: I mean, again, you know, the court certainly has overruled prior precedents uh, before, but I, I think you're right in suggesting that this overruling is really a sea change and one that has really quite dramatic and sweeping impacts on the lives of people, right? It is now allowing states to ban and severely restrict abortion, states are quickly acting to exercise this new power. Um, As of yesterday afternoon, I think we had 17 states that ban or soon will ban all abortions. Um, And to be clear, this affects not just pregnant people who want to end the pregnancy, but it will have impacts on women's lives throughout their entire lives. Having to carry an unwanted pregnancy can lead to physical risks, both during the course of the pregnancy and over the course of the woman's life. Um, It affects her ability to participate equally in society. It increases her chance of living in poverty. Um, It makes it more difficult for her to pursue the career path that she wants. And so the impact really will be and is dramatic.
1: One of the discussions that Came up arising from that case, from the case we're talking about, was uh, it's been there before, but it really got very strong this week. Was should there be more members of the Supreme Court? Sort of a should there be should its membership be increased? It had been proposed earlier, many years ago. Uh, should there be term limits uh, on individual members? Uh, Twelve years, for example, much as we have in California with UC Board of Regents and. I think our judicially, appellate court justices uh, have 12-year terms and stand before voters for confirmation. Uh, is there any uh, value in having term limits or even uh, even increasing the member of the courts? Or is this strictly a, is this a political reaction to a decision that raised a lot of controversy?
2: And how
0: would all, if that actually was possible, how would it happen?
2: Yeah, you know, Yeah, so there has been quite a lot of conversation in the past several years about changes to um, the composition of the Supreme Court. Um, uh, So the president has actually uh, convened a commission to consider some of these questions. They have considered both questions about expanding the number of members of the court, as well as questions about term limits. Um, I guess it's important for listeners to know that the Constitution does not uh limit the current configuration of the Supreme Court, although that is set by statute. Um, it has not always been a nine-member court. Congress has at times changed the number of members of the court. And so um, it's not uh it doesn't need to be a nine member court, doesn't need to be configured in the way that it is currently configured. Um, at this point in time, it doesn't seem like there are the votes um, in Congress to Uh, make changes to the number of members of the court or to add term limits. Uh, But I think the conversation will continue and maybe will become more heated in the wake uh, of this decision.
1: Is that a decision the, the Congress can make? It's not something that requires an amendment, for example, and shopping it around to various states and needing a majority of the states to approve it. This is something Congress, if it wants to, would be able to do.
2: Yes, Congress could change the number of members of the court, which it has done in the past.
1: The way it is now, a justice can be appointed, uh, can, a nominee can be nominated for the court, appointed and confirmed uh, at a relatively young age. It takes me as younger and younger each year for me personally, but there can be people that are 50, 45, 55, and clearly they have a, uh, the possibility of spending a couple of decades or more uh, on the court. Should, do you think there should be age limits? Uh, retirement limits? I know we have those in the military. We have those in other occupations. Should that apply to court members or do they get better as they get older?
2: <laughs> um, so, so you're right uh, that uh, a number of the members of the court are, are quite young. Uh, members of the court can be on the court for many decades. And I think, you know, these are other questions that the commission has been contemplating. Again, term limits um, or possible Um, uh, other questions related to the age and the length of time that members sit on the court.
1: Great. Switch gears for a second. We wanted, Tim and I were talking before the show, and as you too, as well, on the Uniform Parentage Act. Uh, What exactly is that? And really, what problem is it solving?
2: Yeah. So the Uniform Parentage Act is a statutory scheme that is drafted by Um, experts from around the country and is made available to the states, and it is intended to set rules for determining who a child's legal parents are. Um, The first iteration of the Parentage Act was promulgated in 1973, and it was intended to help states address what were discriminatory laws against children born to unmarried couples It was updated in 2002 and then we updated it again in 2017 um, to help states update their statutes to make sure they applied equally to children of same-sex couples.
1: And it it benefits uh, same-sex couples, uh, couples that aren't married but have children, parents or or couples that may have adopted children uh, or over time just are taking care of children. I mean, the idea is to sort of specify and define their rights, and I don't know, in cases of inheritance, uh, health insurance cases. Um, I see a lot of issues coming in. Is that the point?
2: Yeah. So, who a child's legal parent is is incredibly important, as your question suggested. Many different rights and protections flow through that legal parent-child relationship. If a child doesn't have a legally recognized parent-child relationship with a person that they view as their parent, It could mean that they could be cut off from that person uh, permanently and abruptly. If the family breaks apart, it could mean that the child isn't entitled to child support through that person. It could mean that the child isn't entitled to inherit through that person or to get benefits through that person if that person is injured or becomes uh, or dies. And so it's a really important question and again, it helps all families and all children for those rules to be clear, for us to know who the child's legal parents are. Um, and the act tries to um, protect children and protect children's established relationships with the people who are caring for them.
1: It's sort of a template or it's sort of a, a pattern uh, that people, that states can follow if they wish to. I can think of a couple other examples on this. I know there are, insurance industry has shopped around to the state's various um, statutes, draft statutes, the states that they want can adopt. Is this the same kind of thing? This is in federal law, but you make it available to states that they want to pursue it.
2: So it's not federal law, actually. So oh. it's, a, it's a sort of a model statutory scheme that is drafted by an organization called the Uniform Law Commission, and they draft okay. model laws on issues of state law where uniformity would be beneficial.
1: I see, Okay, And how many states have signed on? Or are there a number you can mention?
2: Yeah, I can, actually. Um, So many, many states have some version of the Uniform Parentage Act. More than half the states have some version. Um, In terms of the most recent iteration, the 2017 Uniform Parentage Act, there are seven states that have enacted the act um, completely or substantially. And then we have a few other states that have enacted portions of the 2017 UPA.
0: Uh, one of the things I found really interesting on this is that a, a child can have more than two parents, which given the nature of the world today, I think we all know families that have, uh, you know, the, the original parents split. And so now they have step-parents, whatever, who are extremely involved. It makes sense, but it also, it's sort of a progressive idea, I guess. And I thought it was interesting that this sort of recognizing the real world as it is, as opposed to the world in, you know, the old theory that it was, you know, two parents and and kids, and that was what a family was. And that's not the case for so many people in America and around the world today. And I thought it was interesting that it reflects that, that you would have, obviously it seems really simple that there would be kids that would have multiple parents, more than two parents, but this actually sort of codifies that.
2: Yeah. So the Uniform Parentage Act of 2017, it actually has two different approaches on this particular question, and it lets states choose which option they want. So there is one option, one statutory provision that says a child is limited to a total of two parents. So states can choose to enact that provision, but it also includes an optional three-parent provision that essentially says in rare cases where it is necessary to protect the child, the court can find that a child has more than two legal parents. Um, and we did that in, um, to reflect the advancements that we're seeing in states, uh, recognizing the reality of children's lives and recognizing the reality that as you suggested, many children do have more than two people that they view as their parents. Um, and there are more than two people for many children who are functioning as parents to children.
1: You know, I, earlier we talked about the court decisions this week, um, and some didn't get a whole lot of play, but they're really interesting to me. That EPA decision involving jurisdiction of the federal EPA as it relates to the other states, uh, that involved the coal producers, I believe, in West Virginia. That doesn't seem to have a measurable impact in California, given the way our EPA predates the national EPA and has had a great deal of authority over the years, it doesn't seem here that it's going to have an effect. Is that is that reasonable or is there an impact, sir, that I'm just not seeing?
2: Well, um, so I think so this case, West Virginia versus EPA, I think has the potential to have quite sweeping impacts on people in all states um, Uh and in areas of law uh, well outside the areas that the EPA governs. So the case really is about the scope of power of federal administrative agencies, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Administration is one federal agency, but there are many other federal agencies. There's OSHA, the Occupational Safety uh, uh, and Health Administration, there's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and these agencies promulgate many, many, many rules and regulations that impact all of our daily lives. And what the decision suggests is that the scope of these agencies' power is much more limited um, than we thought it was, that the agencies uh, are limited in their ability to promulgate rules that are of vast economic and political significance, unless Congress has really, really specifically given them the authority to promulgate that regulation. And that's just very unusual because that's not really how it's supposed to work as Justice Kagan explained in her dissent. Normally what Congress does is it offers the agency quite a great deal of discretion because the agency has the experts who know what specific regulations need to be promulgated specifics that members of Congress typically don't know. And so it's unusual for Congress to tell the agency in, in specific terms what those rules and regulations should say and look like.
1: Is this, it sounds a little bit like a state's rights issue then and the decision is left the states handle uh, handlers or usurping that?
2: No, so this is not about the relationship between states and the federal government. It's huh. about the relationship between Congress and federal executive Agencies, Um, And again, what the court is doing is uh, really cutting back on the scope of power of these federal administrative agencies and saying to Congress, if you want the agency to have the power to draft kind of broad, big rules and regulations, you need to tell them with a great deal of specificity what those rules and regulations need to look like. Uh, but again, I'll just quote from Kagan, because I think she does it really, does it really nicely. Um, that's just not how it normally works. Normally, Congress is giving the agency quite a bit of discretion because it's the agency that has the expertise, um, the agency that knows what needs to be done in these very complicated areas of law. Um, And so it's just going to be very unusual that we're going to have situations where Congress is going to be able to give them the degree of specificity that the court is telling us now Congress must give in order for the agency to have the power to act.
0: It really strikes me that, you know, as you're saying that, that's sort of the functionality of the Constitution itself. The Constitution itself is actually a fairly broad document, which is why it's managed to stay intact, more or less, for the last 200 and something years. And it doesn't get into the specifics, because I think the the authors of the Constitution, I guess James Madison, et, et cetera, understood that this if it was going to have to work for a long period of time, it was going to have to have a lot of flexibility and a lot of uh, broad language. And what you're describing to me is, is sort of the court itself now suggesting that Congress shouldn't be following that model, and it should be very specific. And to me, that's an interesting uh, sort of an interesting idea that they would be saying, well, don't follow the, the constitutional model. You have to really get specific on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Constitution actually doesn't speak to administrative agencies and so really doesn't provide any guidance about these questions. Um, but for um, you know, the last century, the court has interpreted Congress's power as being quite broad in this area, it has said, you know, so long as Congress gives some Um, uh, some broad guidelines to the agency about what the agency can and cannot do, that that's sufficient to authorize the agency to act. And what the court has done really in the last year, based on a very newly emerging doctrine that it calls the major questions doctrine, it is now saying, again, that when an agency wants to promulgate a rule that is major, um, that has vast political and economic significance, Congress needs to have given them very specific authorization. Um, And that's just not how it's done typically, because again, Congress often doesn't have the expertise, doesn't know what needs to be done. It's the agency that knows what needs to be done. Um, And I think this decision is going to call into question um, uh, rules and regulations that we see in a whole range of areas.
0: You know, this is, really neither here nor there, but I found it really interesting. So Justice Gorsuch's mother was a high-ranking official at the EPA. And I just thought, what are the odds? First off, that's Washington apparently is a very small world. Uh, But it also, it brings to mind the idea that justices don't have to recuse themselves for any reason. Uh, and, And I don't, you could maybe speak to this. Is that the case in any other federal judicial appointment that if you had a direct link, say, to a case, you would have to recuse yourself? Or is that more standard in the federal judiciary than I would expect?
2: Well, so um, there are rules that suggest that federal uh, Supreme Court justices should recuse, but there's no it, it's it's an honor system. Um, so there's no review of a justice's decision about whether or not to recuse themselves from a case. And there have been conversations um, uh, about changing the rules, uh, but at this point, um, it is largely an honor system that applies.
0: Uh, My last question would be related to Clarence Thomas' comments about the possibility of overturning Obergefell, Griswold and other cases. And I know you noted that other people did not join in on that. But I'm wondering if you could speak to the possibility that those other major, major cases could be in danger of being overturned in the future in this court.
2: Yeah. Yes. So, um, as I mentioned, there are a number of places in the opinion where Justice Alito writing for the majority in Dobbs um, says that one should not understand the decision as calling into question these other so-called substantive due process decisions, including Bergafel versus Hodges, establishing nationwide marriage equality for same-sex couples, Lawrence versus Texas, striking down a law that criminalized same-sex sexual intimacy, um, Griswold versus Connecticut, and Eisenstadt establishing access to contraception. Uh, But I think many people were not Uh, assuaged by his claims. And the dissent certainly uh, uh, is concerned that those decisions are now extremely vulnerable in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And what they say is, despite Justice Alito's claims that those decisions are not imperiled by the Dobbs decision, application of the particular approach or analysis that he uses in Dobbs does seem to render those decisions quite vulnerable because what Justice Alito says in Dobbs is there is no constitutionally protected right to abortion because he says it's not specifically enumerated in the constitution. And at the time of the ratification of the 14th amendment in 1868, he says there was no affirmative state protection for the right to abortion. But of course the same could be said about marriage for same-sex couples. There was, no, there was no state that provided an affirmative right of same-sex couples to marry in 1868. Um, and similar arguments could be made about um, protection for same-sex non-marital intimacy um, and access to contraception.
1: Great. Great. Courtney Joslin, professor at UC Davis, law professor at UC Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm hoping to get Courtney next year at the end of the Supreme Court term. We can talk about what happens then. So <laughs> thank you all so much uh, for joining us. And now um, Tim Foster and I are going to turn to our long-awaited, specially uh, promoted feature, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics?
2: The Worst Week.
0: Worst Week. Worst Week. And Tim, what do you think? Well, no one this week had, it was, it was not a spectacular week, but I will say that uh, turning our eyes to Sacramento, uh, City Councilman Sean lolowe which I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. I've only read it. Uh, he sure seems like he's having a bad week. Uh, Sacramento Bee reporter Teresa Clift has been doing a series of stories uh, investigating where he actually lives and where he actually lived at the time he uh, ran for council. And it sure looks like Granite Bay not uh, not the district that he's actually representing. And this story has gotten bigger and bigger. I see that uh, yesterday, Sacramento Mayor Darrell Steinberg has announced that they're going to have an investigation. Uh, this does not look good. I, I don't know. Have you been following the story, John? Yeah, I've been following it a bit. And
1: as you mentioned, uh, you know, kudos to Teresa Clift at the Sacramento Bee. They've, she's been following this doggedly. The, the Bee has been all over this. Uh, it does not look good whenever a fellow council member start and especially when that's the mayor of the city uh, calls for an investigation of this and other council members uh, hop on board you got a problem and so he does have a problem what the the antidote to this is what the penalty is I'm not sure I don't know it's not legal in the city of Sacramento for a council for anyone um, but a council for elected representative to live in another part outside his district basically and that's what's happening here uh presumably they'll have an investigation at some point if it looks as bad as i think it looks now he will be stepped down or other members will vote to exclude him it really has not been very secretive he does not seem to have been all that secretive about this Uh, it had been buzzed about. People knew about it. But uh, until the B reported, nobody had reported it. So oh, no. in trouble. I to say
0: one of the things that is not helping his case is that he seems to have been not entirely truthful. Uh, you know, he claimed that he had been sworn in. You know, they were sworn in remotely because of COVID. He claimed he was sworn in remotely at a friend's house in East SAC. And the bee analyzed the video and then compared it with photos of this, of his wife, quote unquote, his wife's home in Granite Bay and they're identical. So (laughs) why would you uh, spin a different story? What's the point there? And and I don't know, this whole thing is weird. Apparently his employee has been living in the house that he claims he's been living in and has been there for quite some time. The whole thing is just weird. And uh, frankly, as a, you know, as a voter, as a person who follows the news and as a voter, it speaks to some arrogance on Mr. Laloy's part, at least the way I read it. Yeah, he, sure. he thought he could just say whatever he wanted. No one would pay attention. And Teresa Clift was paying attention. Yeah. You know, this is a weird law too. Um, I mean,
1: in some respects, having to live in the district uh, that you represent does not apply to members of Congress. We were chatting before about Tom uh, McClintock, who used to be from Thousand Oaks. I think he lives up in the foothills now. Uh, Basically, the same district. Uh, They're not required to, but state legislators, assembly members, and members of the Senate, as we have learned over the years, are required to. In Sacramento, in the city of Sacramento, those members of the council are required to. So it's pretty straightforward, potentially a straightforward violation here. But it is a weird law. I just wish there wasn't a patchwork, which I, I wish that California had a uniform code of some sort of where you can live and where you can't if you're an elected official.
0: Well, I don't know. I think it's pretty clear in the Sacramento case uh, because we did away with, and God don't ask me what year we actually did away with it, but we did away with open districts uh, where you know a councilman or councilperson could be from anywhere. Yeah. And we had specific Districts uh, with with drawn out district lines and all that, and I think it's pretty clear that you have to live within your district. And sure. I think that he knew that, uh, or he should certainly should have known that. So I don't think there's really any question about that. The question really for me is like, what is the punishment if it turns out that he did? I don't know. Does that count as perjury? Does that count as voter fraud? If you know, was he registered to vote at this at this address that he doesn't live at? That he's not really. Uh, maybe he was. I don't. I don't know, that would probably be, even be his, uh, his assembly district, I would think, would even be different if he was uh, living in the North Sacramento home versus Granite Bay. So I feel like it opens up a lot of questions, none of which are good for Sean Leloy. Things can change.
1: And we certainly don't know yet, but right now it does not look good for Mr. Lolloy.
0: Maybe Mr. Lolloy is just renting a spare room from his employee in the house that he owns. Hey, we're just talking about unusual family arrangements. Maybe this is an unusual family arrangement for Sean Lolloy. And he lives in the back bedroom from uh, his manager of his grocery store.
1: Yeah. Uh, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, Sean. Uh, This is John Howard
0: saying we will talk to you next time around. So thanks again. Take care. Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.